Hi everyone, John Huang here. I'm a general internist uh, at NYU working at Bellevue Hospital, New York, and I wanted to welcome you to the first episode of what I hope will be a recurring case discussion series here on the Core IM podcast. We're calling it Hoofbeats. Let me introduce you to my partner on this segment, Cindy Fang. Cindy, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. This is Cindy Fang. I'm a hospitalist at NYU, currently working at NYU Lengong Health, right next door to Bellevue. I'm very excited to be here. Mm-hmm. So Cindy and I are both junior attendings. We're about, what, Cindy, three years out of residency at this mm-hmm. point? And this segment grew out of a discussion of what we were missing most about residency. And I think that my personal answer to that question is the ability to work with different people, you know, attendings, consultants, even other residents, and just hear how other people, uh, how they were thinking about the cases we were taking care of. Um, I feel sometimes like I practice, you know, in an echo chamber, that I'm getting complacent in the way I think about my patients. And this is uh, this segment is our, our attempt to kind of break out of that. So in this podcast, what we're going to do, Cindy and I will be challenging you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases, and we'll hear from experienced clinicians who'll be trying to solve them with you in real time. As you might have guessed from the podcast segment title, Cindy and I are hoping to avoid a trophy hunt for zebras, even though the cases might well be complex and unusual. Instead, what we're hunting for here are bits of wisdom. These could be clinical pearls, reasoning techniques, rules of thumb, diagnostic schema, any cognitive tools that might be helpful for our next patient. We'd like to get ourselves thinking about how it is we think about making visible what is so often invisible. In this episode, one of our colleagues at NYU, Dr. Neha Sate, brings us the very unusual story of a patient she took care of about two years ago as a second-year resident. And here she is walking us through the case. So first of all, I mean, she was a 36-year-old woman who was admitted with two days of progressive weakness. And that was her chief complaint. And I guess it kind of started two weeks before admission. She first had a sore throat, malaise, fatigue. And at the time, she thought it was a cold. So she went to the urgent care clinic uh, where she was given five days of azithromycin. And she took and she thought she got better at the time. Two days before she actually came in to the hospital, she began to notice generalized weakness, gradually worsening to the point where she could not even walk. Her parents actually had to bring her into the emergency department with a wheelchair. Um, And the weakness was incredibly like diffuse, actually. She thought it was so bad that she couldn't even quite speak or eat. It was exhausting for her. Um, Although worse, the worst weakness she described was in her legs. Um, And she actually came in in a wheelchair. I think on review systems, the only other comments that she made was that she felt feverish, she was thirsty, and then she had some muscle aches as well. Can you tell us a bit about her past history? Yeah, sure. I mean, she says that she's generally healthy, although she doesn't see doctors regularly. What was interesting, actually, was that she described a similar episode of weakness about 10 years earlier, Mm -hmm. and this was shortly after the birth of her first child. I think at the time she had undergone a C-section and shortly thereafter actually developed weakness while she was still in the hospital. She can't recall any other details in terms of what her lab showed, diagnosis, treatment, but her symptoms had resolved by the time of her discharge. Her second childbirth, though, didn't have this related complication. She also didn't have a C-section at that time. Additionally, several years earlier, she'd been told by a doctor that she had lupus based on like a blood test. 
um, but she couldn't remember exactly which blood test it was. And she didn't have a history of arthralgias, rash, chest pain, shortness of breath, urinary symptoms. And who was she like as, as a person? Where was she from? I guess so. She was um, ethnically Han Chinese. She was born in rural China. She had immigrated to the United States about 15 years ago, had two children, lived with her husband. She worked in part-time at a restaurant as well. So in most senses, an independent functional woman. Had she traveled recently or been in contact with anyone who was sick? No, no recent travel, no sick contacts. And mm-hmm. she didn't, she had no toxic habits? None. What about her family? Was anything, did you elicit anything there? She said that her mother maybe was diagnosed with some mild kidney disease, but didn't have any details around that. Was she taking anything? She took ibuprofen for headaches occasionally, took some eye drops for dry eyes, and a B-complex vitamin. But other than that, no medications regularly. Neha explained that this was the extent of the patient's story that had been available to the admitting physicians. So what would you have said and done at this point? We'll pause here so you can form an opinion. And after the break, we'll hear from our discussant and compare notes. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. So we just heard about a young woman who was hospitalized with profound generalized weakness. To dissect this case, Cindy and I sat down with Dr. Michael Janjigian. He's a general internist and an associate professor of medicine here at NYU. And here are some of his reactions to the information you heard. And to be clear, again, he was not previously familiar with this case. I'm hearing a 36-year-old woman, relatively young, with two days of progressive weakness. Uh, Again, not a whole lot to go off of, but I've seen this before where progressive weakness could be a primary neurologic disorder or could just be someone who's so profoundly ill from malaise that it's interpreted as weakness. So uh, the way the words are presented, I always proceed with caution that I may be led, being led a certain way. Here we see Dr. Jingjigian reserving judgment as to whether this patient actually has a true neurologic defect or merely constitutional symptoms, and this is the kind of protest skepticism we all need to equip as a defense mechanism against framing bias. The definition for framing effect, remember, is a cognitive bias where we react to a problem differently depending on how it is presented to us. In this case, the word Weakness frames the chief complaint in a particular way. People will present cases to me, which as an attending is mostly how I'm hearing about cases to start. Uh, we're, you know, we're in a hospital where we don't have a direct, uh, direct care service for faculty. So we're, I'm almost always reading an HMP or having somebody present their interpretation of a case to me. And so I'm used to interpreting everything that I'm hearing uh, with skepticism. And so when I hear people are presenting with lower extremity weakness, I've been presented this enough times to know that that could be true neurologic dysfunction or that could just be profound malaise or something along those lines. The weakness to me was somewhat nonspecific and can go either way. And then as I really tried to dissect it, 
presenting with in a wheelchair is without being overtly septic and extremist made me think that this is more primarily a neurologic etiology uh, and then to look at it uh, through that lens. Yeah, so Cindy, you know, Janjigian here is is kind of saying that his need for skepticism is kind of an overlearned habit, something that comes with, I guess, being a teaching attending. And I just want to totally reiterate this point, especially as a junior attending. You know, I, I feel like um, for those of you who don't know what it's like, it's a terrifying experience. On the one hand, you don't have, you're not comfortable enough to feel like you can do things by intuition alone. So that makes you very reliant on, on hard data. Um, but again, you're being fed that almost in exclusively, you know, by other people. Um, but I do want to point out, if you think about it, all of us, no matter what, you know, stage of training we're at, um, are in a position to be affected by framing bias. I mean, you could be a resident getting handoff from the ED. You know, you could be a med student who's been asked to interpret an ABG that you didn't draw. Um, you could be a nurse who's uh, getting an SBAR um, from a different part of the hospital and a patient you've never met. So I think we all need to be skeptical to consciously avoid reduplicating the previous provider's assumptions. It's just one of those unfortunate upshots of the collaborative way in which uh, modern medicine is practiced. I completely agree, Zhang. I also want to point out that some chief complaints seem to be more objective, like I had a fever of 102 at home. Some symptoms are more subjective and can mean many different things, which it creates rooms for misinterpretation. Weakness, for example, can be a sensation of fatigue, dizziness, presyncope, decreased exercise tolerance, depression, and many other things. With experience, I hope, comes with a sense of which clinical problems are more problematic than others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Weakness, chest pain, dizziness is another one that often gets me into trouble. Janjigian moves on from the patient's chief complaint to examine each piece of information in the patient's history with the same level of scrutiny and detail. And he generates many hypotheses. She was given azithromycin. So could her current illness be a partially treated infection? or an adverse effect of the medication, or is it just unrelated? She had similar weakness after childbirth, so could this be some sort of postpartum cardiac or endocrine problem? And then he deconstructed the questionable history of lupus we were given into an alternative hypothesis. When I hear might have lupus, to me that means low-level ANA and nonspecific symptoms. So somebody clearly worked her up for these things. If you're going to send an ANA, that means you've not only sent that, but you send basic labs as well. Uh, but I do imagine that whatever she has now is associated with some low level of ANA or something along those lines, perhaps rheumatoid factor. Um, she doesn't think she had lupus um, and has no other kind of symptoms specifically related to uh, a lupus-like uh, diagnosis. So again, looking at from the room process, uh, it affects it. It's hard to say, though. Again, there's so many overlap syndromes, um, but it doesn't make it seem like a full-blown lupus case. But perhaps something on the milder spectrum, uh, and that perhaps an infection, whatever this URI was, was predisposing to an exacerbation or a flare of whatever kind of mild process she may have had. Now, something that jumps off the page at me is the eye drops for dry eyes. So now we're hearing somebody with thirst on eye drops for dry eyes. Some family history of renal disease. Uh, we're hearing about probably a low-level ANA. So now we're thinking about either Sika syndrome or Sjogren's syndrome. 
Cognitive researchers call what Dr. Janjigian is doing here forward reasoning or data-driven reasoning. You see how he starts with small pieces of clinical data and rearranges or clusters them into coherent patterns to form hypotheses about the patient's diagnosis. So eye drops become sicka. You know, told she has lupus but no symptoms of lupus is deconstructed down to positive ANA. And he infers her history of similar illness before childbirth to mean that the tempo of her current illness isn't acute. It's actually chronic and subclinical. It flares during acute stress. And so he pulls all of this together to hypothesize maybe this isn't lupus, but another rheumatologic disease, maybe Sjogren's. And that is a testable hypothesis, one that opens us up for more questions, one that would in the real world guide his next steps. The opposite strategy to forward reasoning, guess what, would be working backwards, <laughs> also known as the hypothesis-driven approach. You would start with a clinical problem and then generate hypothesis. These could be very general, like... Like the problem is neurologic rather than constitutional, right? Exactly. Yeah. Or it could be really specific. Uh, like this is Guillain-Barre. The next step would be to test the hypothesized diagnosis by comparing it to the illness script. Right. So I'd be like, this could be GBS. The weakness seems worse in the legs, and it was preceded by a URI. But mm, it didn't really fit the classical ascending manner, and the time core seems too explosive. Yeah. So as you might guess after hearing this, one of the major problems with backwards reasoning is that it tends to be slow and inefficient. It's taxing on working memory because a potentially overwhelming number of diagnostic hypotheses can be generated from all but really the simplest of clinical problems. I mean, think about all the things that can cause weakness. So some cognitive researchers have suggested that non-experts tend to rely more heavily on hypothesis-driven backwards reasoning. Whereas master diagnosticians are often able to secure diagnoses more efficiently and more accurately using data-driven forward reasoning. So does that mean we should all be using forward reasoning all the time? Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it's that simple. Um, I mean, for starters, there are situations where working backwards can be advantageous, maybe even the only option you have. I mean, think about situations where you have very limited clinical data or what you have is very unreliable. Wouldn't be a good idea to reason forward from that. Better to start with a diagnostic schema for weakness, say, and work backwards from there. Then I want to point out, you know, it, it takes a certain level of expertise, of domain knowledge to be able to reason forwards effectively. You know, reasoning forward is a kind of alchemy. You see how Dr. Janjigian, he decomposes, arranges, assembles data into these increasingly meaningful chunks. You know, it's driven in large part by pattern recognition, which has to come from experience. So to try to do that when we're not ready, it's a little bit irresponsible. It's like trying to drive stick, you know, when you really should be sticking with automatic transmission. I think the take home here is we recognize where we lack the knowledge or familiarity to reason a priori. And in those situations, we consciously try to avoid doing this, to reason our way from data to diagnosis solely by inference. You know, you'll see, actually, as Janjugian moves on to the social history, it's not always even clear what's noise and what's signal, you know, what's worth anchoring on. She's Han Chinese. She was born in China. So is her ethnicity or country of origin related? Uh, there's some articles recently suggesting that we shouldn't refer to people's ethnicities in cases that, it, that there's poor correlation between disease processes and where people are from, uh, it's still pretty pervasive and pretty prevalent to think about it this way. 
but that's certainly the way I learned it. And so when I think about diseases that may be associated with Chinese patients, thinking about periodic paralysis is one, uh, other syndromes as well, but that's the first one that pops into my head when I think about Chinese ethnicity uh, and somebody with presenting with a profound weakness syndrome. Just as a refresher, patients with periodic paralysis syndrome suffer episodic weakness due to massive intracellular shifts of potassium, usually triggered by periods of stress or exercise. There is a familiar form in which a patient has an inherited calcium channelopathy. There's also an acquired version caused by hyperthyroidism. In both diseases, patients can be entirely asymptomatic in between episodes. Sadly, for a young Asian like me, thyrotoxic periodic paralysis is reportedly more common in young and middle-aged Asians. I like how you specified before you said that you were a young Asian. <laughs> you couldn't just <laughs> you couldn't leave the ambiguity there. I, I can't be the middle-aged <laughs> part. So this might sound obvious, but the more similarities there are between a case and our mental prototype for diagnosis, the more likely we judge that diagnosis to be. And so this this patient's Asian ethnicity, you know, her young age, autoimmune history, the episodic tempo of illness. I don't know. To me, that seems to resemble pretty closely Cindy's description of thyrotoxic periodic paralysis. And so, you know, naturally, our suspicion for that diagnosis increases. It should increase. That type of reasoning is called the representativeness heuristic. And we use it so often as clinicians that often it's entirely unconscious. But the question becomes, how much should it increase our suspicion? You know, if you take a step back for a moment, periodic paralysis is a rare diagnosis. I mean, the studies that I read suggested an incidence of somewhere between 1% to 4% uh, in Asians with hyperthyroidism. And meanwhile, being Asian, uh, pretty common. Uh, There are, in case you haven't noticed, two Asians sitting in this very booth. And so logically, this is what Dr. Chen Jigin's pointing out, we have to recognize that her ethnicity, you know, as provocative as it is, it lacks discriminative power. The vast majority of Asians who develop weakness will not have periodic paralysis. And similarly, being a woman, having autoimmune disease, having episodic weakness, that all fits, but none of those things are particularly specific. Hmm. In other words, when we are proposing a rare diagnosis, it's not enough if a patient fits the prototypical presentation. We need to take into account prevalence. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that sounds obvious, Cindy, but actually it's very hard to do, even consciously. Um, Hear me out. In 1973, cognitive psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Seversky, you might be familiar with those names, they published a seminal study of the representativeness heuristic, in which they asked participants to estimate the percentage of college graduates that went on to specialize in one of nine fields. Then they gave them a description of a fictional person named Tom W., and that read in part as follows. Cindy? Tom W. is of high intelligence, although lacking in true creativity. He has a need for order and clarity and for neat and tidy systems in which every detail finds its appropriate place. His writing is rather dull and mechanical, occasionally enlivened by somewhat corny puns and by flashes of imagination of the sci-fi type. He does not enjoy interacting with others. (laughs) Sounds like me. Study participants universally concluded Tom W. was not a doctor, Cindy, most likely a computer scientist. And this was even though in the first part of the study, participants had, on average, estimated that only 7% of college graduates went into computer science. 
In other words, even though they were asked specifically about prevalence, they completely ignored that in their decision-making. They relied instead solely on their perception of computer scientists to judge that Tom W. was likely to be one of them. And so this kind of cognitive error you know, where we ignore prevalence and focus on representativeness is called base rate neglect. The difficulty is though, heuristic representativeness can be a valuable tool that saves time. When something looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck most of the time, right? We're not gonna waste time and go searching for a horse here. Yeah, absolutely. Heuristics, you know, uh, we use them for a reason. They're good enough most of the time. I, I think, you know, the take home here is, you know, we have to recognize when we're proposing that it's a duck and when we're proposing it's a unicorn. You know, if it, if it walks, talks, and looks like a unicorn, uh, you probably still should think twice, maybe consult a veterinarian. Um, <laughs> So we asked Neha next to walk us through the objective data that was available to the patients admitting physicians, and this is what she told us. On exam, her temperature was 100.7, pulse 87, blood pressure 106 over 56, respiratory rate 19 breaths per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 100% on room air. She was a young, thin Asian woman who was alert, answering questions. She did look tired and kind of listless. She didn't have any nuchal rigidity or photophobia. Her pupillary reflexes, eye movements, facial symmetry, sensation, and tongue thrust were all normal. Her oropharyngeal exam didn't show any erythema or exudates. Uh, she did have poor dentition. Uh, her heart, lung, and abdominal exams were unremarkable. And then on strength testing, uh, she could partially resist with her arms and hands, but she could barely hold her legs and feet against gravity. Hmm. Um, her patella reflex was diminished on the left and completely absent on the right, uh, but sensation was preserved throughout. Uh, her skin exam was unremarkable. She didn't have any rashes or and she it. didn't have any joint effusions. Mm -hmm. What about labs? Okay, so her labs were notable for a white count of 20.1 with 93% neutrophils, a hemoglobin of 10.6 with an MCV of 81. Her basic was really abnormal. So sodium was 136, potassium 1.9, chloride 119. The bicarb was less than 10, uh, BUN 31, and creatinine 1.2. In terms of her other electrolytes, her magnesium was 2.0, and her phosphate was 1.5. Hepatic panel was normal. Coagulation studies were normal. Mm -hmm. uh, An EKG showed sinus rhythm with U-waves. Mm -hmm. uh, chest X-ray was normal. Neha explained the neuroimaging was normal, as was a CK level. So that was the extent of the information we heard about this patient. And with that, we're going to pause here and give you a chance to collect your thoughts and encourage you to lock in a diagnosis. Because when we come back, we'll hear Dr. Janjigian's final diagnosis, and Neha will walk us through the resolution of this case.
Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. This week, we're trying to solve the case of a young woman with generalized flaccid paralysis progressing to acute respiratory failure who was found to have profound electrolyte abnormalities. So Dr. Janjigian heard this case in two parts, history first and objective data second, just like you did. And actually, he had strong feelings about the diagnosis after hearing just the history alone. It's, it's a young woman, seemingly otherwise healthy, uh, with a rapidly progressive neurologic deterioration, uh, non-localizing per se, after a seemingly uncomplicated URI where she was given azithro, in the setting of a more detailed history of having a mother with some renal disorder and her having a personal history of uh, dry eyes that was concerning for a, a Sicka syndrome. So now going back through the case, what to focus on. Uh, things hopefully that are somewhat discriminatory that add some specificity uh, to what a potential di diagnosis may be. As I mentioned, the URI could have just triggered a rheumatologic flare or it could be something related to the azithromycin, uh, which again could trigger myasthenia gravis exacerbation. Uh, again, I'm not really hearing anything specific for myasthenia gravis. Usually they have ocular or bulbar symptoms and not just peripheral weakness. So that is seemingly uh, less likely in this case. Again, the childbirth with thyroid disease perhaps related, uh, myasthenia gravis, periodic paralysis, other rheumatologic conditions still come to mind. And so again, in the setting altogether of the probable low-level ANA, the thirst, the dry eyes, I'm thinking something about Sicka syndrome or Sjogren's um, and, and periodic paralysis. So plugging that into Google, pulls up a few case reports of patients with an RTA where there's some trigger that leads to a paralysis flare in the setting of a Sjogren syndrome. So I'm not sure if one or two or three of those may be correct, um, but that would be my thought process in working it up. I feel like I could be way off with that, but that would be the general idea. The, the initial battery of labs would tell me very quickly whether I was off on the wrong course with that, mm -hmm. and I might need to redirect, but I, I would keep an open enough an, open mind enough to know that I could, I would very quickly need to like go away from a somewhat seemingly random diagnosis that I had to find through a Google search and case reports, uh, that I might need to find something that is a little epidemiologically more common. Hypokalemic 
paralysis due to renal tubular acidosis secondary to undiagnosed Sjogren syndrome. <laughs> so there was this long silence right after Janjigian finished talking here as Cindy, Cindy and I struggled to process what he just said. I mean, honestly, I could not believe he could say something so specific and unusual with such confidence, you know, before even hearing any of the objective data. This was pure forward reasoning. He had nothing objective to anchor on at that point. He did not know the patient was hypokalemic. And we just talked about how forward reasoning is, you know, is fraught with peril. I agree. That was completely amazing to hear. I do want to point out, though, that Dr. Jingjigian fully acknowledges that he's out on a limb in the witness of his proposal. He straight up says, I could be way off. I need to keep an open mind and not be necessarily satisfied with the random diagnosis. Again, even though he's attracted to how well this diagnosis fits the details of the case he's given, he's aware of how unusual this entity is. And so in the next part of the case, he is determined to consciously look for data not compatible with the diagnosis, which I think is very important, the idea of avoiding confirmational bias. I, I agree. And I also think it's interesting how he acknowledged he wasn't immediately familiar with this particular association. He said he Googled it. And I actually appreciate that candor because I think it captures something of reality in which you know oftentimes the real challenge in complex cases is to figure out what the fundamental features of the case are you know again what's signal and what's noise you know what belongs in your google search or your problem representation and what doesn't in this case janjigian didn't necessarily need to know firsthand that strogans can cause rta he only recognized that a history of strogans could open up a lot of potential avenues for investigation some of which might be relevant to a weakness syndrome so, it turns out that this isn't even a zebra. The prevalence of renal manifestations in patients with Sjogren's is surprisingly high. Hypokalemic paralysis from RTA turns out to be a well-described phenomenon on Sjogren's syndrome, sometimes even the initial presentation. In fact, RTA isn't even the only form of renal Sjogren's. Some patients instead develop progressive chronic renal insufficiency. Others develop nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. In many cases, the renal involvement is totally subclinical, just abnormalities on urine studies. Right, Cindy. And uh, now that I know that, I don't think I'll ever forget this. Um, but what if we don't immediately make that connection here between extraglandular strogrins and weakness? What do we focus on? Or honestly, even if we do recognize that pattern, how do we then slow our thought process down and analyze this case further? Well, you know, one strategy in complex cases, it makes sense to deliberately anchor our diagnostic reasoning on a limited number of findings, those that have the greatest potential to advance the case. And these are typically abnormalities or combinations of abnormalities that are known with certainty and associated with a limited differential. Some authors call these critical findings pivot points because we can pivot our thought process around them. Right. An example of a pivot point in this case would be the combination of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis and hypokalemia because this is pretty characteristic of two disease processes, diarrheal losses and RTAs. And she had already denied diarrhea, which should make us focus on the possibility of an RTA. So, going back to what we said earlier about being skeptical, I do want to point out that not all diarrhea has to be reported by the patient. Consider an eating disorder with laxative abuse, 
and here she is, a thin young woman with poor dentition and strange electrolyte abnormalities. Now that's a great point, Cindy. And therein lies the danger of pivot points. You're essentially deliberately committing anchoring, so the pivots have to be reliable, or else you can go off on the wrong direction or be blindsided. Fortunately for this patient, it turns out, her physician's initial instincts turned out to be correct. So, shall we resolve the case? Yes, Cindy, I think it's time. Let's talk about the urine studies first. Speaking to your concern about laxative abuse, the urine potassium concentration and fractional excretion of potassium were both relatively high. And that suggests the patient's hypokalemia was being driven by potassium wasting at the kidneys, not at the gut. What about the urine anion and osmolal gaps? Right. Now, remember, just as a refresher, the urine anion and osmolal gaps are calculations that essentially estimate the concentration of urinary ammonium. Now, that's the major form in which the body excretes excess acid. In this patient, these suggested that the urine ammonium concentration was relatively low. In other words, the kidneys, her kidneys, were not properly excreting acid as would be expected given her acidemia. In other words, she had distal RTA. There was a wrinkle, though. She also had elevated levels of urine phosphate, uric acid, and glucose, which together suggested a component of concurrent proximal tubular dysfunction. I've been reading Sjogren's and other autoimmune diseases are classically associated with the distal RTA. The proximal RTA is somewhat odd. I mean, multiple myeloma and other medications are the common causes of the proximal RTA, but I'm not sure why this patient would have it. Yet neither do I, and maybe that's a little reminder to us that cases in medicine are rarely as neat around the corners as we want them to be. But what we do know about this patient is that her ANA, SSA, and SSB all came back markedly positive. An eye exam confirmed zero ophthalmia. The workup for other diagnoses, meanwhile, was negative. Her thyroid studies were normal. The other autoantibodies were negative. The toxicology was clean. Her renal biopsy showed lymphocytic infiltration and tubulointerstitial nephritis. Those are findings that are characteristic of renal Sjogren's. So she was started on steroids and Plaquenil, and she made a brisk recovery. And so the final consensus among her physicians was exactly the diagnosis our discussant proposed, hypokalemic paralysis due to RTA, secondary to Sjogren's. So, Zhang, maybe we should summarize what we touched on working through this case and hearing from Dr. Jingjigian today. Yes, Indy. So, you know, we discussed how important it is before embarking on a search for a diagnosis of first taking a timeout and trying to question or deconstruct the data that you're given rather than simply accepting it at face value. We also weigh the pros and cons of working forward with data-driven reasoning versus working backwards with hypothesis-driven reasoning. And we talked a bit about the representativeness heuristic, where we rate a diagnosis as probable based on how well the case seems to fit our mental picture for that diagnosis, and how we should balance this with probabilistic reasoning to avoid committing base rate neglect. We talked about how the long list of manifestations and diseases associated with Sjogren's syndrome, including a number of renal syndromes, among them distal renal tubular acidosis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that should do it, you know, for this week. So we want to thank Drs. Neha Sate, Michael Janjigian, and Verity Shea for weighing in on this episode. 
Special thanks to our editors, Amy O and David Ree, along with Steve Liu, Shreya Trivedi, and Marty Freed over at our sister segments on Core IM. Do you have comments about the case, the discussion, or the commentary? Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's episode or ideas for future episodes. Send us an email at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at, at coreimpodcast. Thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm Cindy Fain. And I'm John Huang. Thanks again. See you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.